Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let these words penetrate your heart. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Thank you. There's one person out there. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm excited to be here today to share the word of the Lord with you. There is nothing uh, more, more wonderful than to be able to share his word, the words of God. Um, recently, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but our uh, regular preaching schedule has been quite interrupted. And um, though it only serves to further God's purposes... But don't worry, we will return to our Matthew series eventually, Uh, not next week, but the week after, so so rest easy. Uh, But these past few weeks, you've been hearing some words from the pastors, just some burdens from the Lord, teachings that he's instructed us with that we wanted to share with you. And that's just another, uh, this is going to be another one of those. Um, So I'm going to share with you something that the Lord has been teaching me from this passage and throughout the Bible, I hope I can just capture some of what the Lord's been teaching me and give that to you. May the Lord do it. And um, this passage, it says that the gospel was first declared by the Lord himself, and then it was attested to us by those who first heard him, the first witnesses of his resurrection. But it doesn't stop there, right? I think maybe some of us would have put a period after verse 3. But he adds something else. There is a witness more profound and more authoritative than the witness of those who saw the resurrected Lord. The first witnesses, they lie in their graves. But another witness still bears testimony to the authenticity of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, of the power and might of Christ to save, of the power of his blood to cover our sins and to cleanse us. And that testimony comes from God himself. So church, this this is the great difference between a Christian witness that comes in word only and that which comes in both word and in power. In power. Paul says of his witness in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power 
and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you crave that, church? Is that something that you want to experience and to see? Do you crave God bearing witness with us and a testimony of power? That is the need of the hour. That is the need of God's kingdom. Men and women who will speak the word, they will speak the truth, and they won't just speak it, but they will walk in the power of the Spirit. And that is the nature of God's kingdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. This is important, and that's my burden for you today, church, that you would receive this. So we're going to talk about the power of the Spirit to testify, the purpose of that power, and the posture that receives that power, alliterated neatly for you to remember. So may the Lord accomplish His will in us through the proclamation of His Word and by the work of His Spirit, but let us make this request known to God together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word that we get to read this, God. Thank you so much for this gift. Thank you so much for the gift of your spirit given to us in love so you may love your church, your bride, more and more and more. God, thank you for this gift. Would you today magnify your name? Would you magnify your son's name? And would you magnify your Holy Spirit today? Let us see the power of your Spirit and the love that you show us through your Spirit today. Open up our eyes to see that. God, let me not just speak a word, but let me speak it in power, God. Let me demonstrate what we're talking about today and let your power move among the congregation today. Help me to magnify your love toward us in your Spirit. Grant us understanding, grant us faith to believe, and grant us faith to call upon your name, to receive the blessings that you have promised for us. Let us not fall short of the blessings that you promise us. Let us receive all of them, God. And all this, Lord, we pray in your name, for your glory. Amen. So before we get into what we're really talking about today, let me just describe to you the typical operations of the Holy Spirit. So if you recall Jesus' last teachings before his death, in John 14 through 16 through 17, he taught about the person of the Holy Spirit, that he would come as a helper for believers, not as an impersonal force, but as the person and presence of God. It is not just some power, some energy This is the very person of God come among us and dwells within us. Jesus said that the Spirit would teach them all things, that he would bring to their remembrance all that he had taught them, that he would convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness, that he would manifest Jesus to those who believe him, that he would comfort them, that he would fellowship with them, and that he would seal them for the day of redemption when he returns. Wow, how many promises we have in the Spirit. After his parting from them and his ascension into heaven, he would not leave them as orphans. He would not leave them alone. He would give them something even better than his bodily presence, his Spirit to dwell with them. They would have the very presence of God as their constant companion 
and their helper. Praise the Lord. There's so much that we have in the Spirit. Perhaps that's all you even need to hear today, just that part, (laughs) right? All these promises, these blessings that we have in the Spirit, that by receiving the Spirit, you never have to be truly alone, that God is with you. Praise God. But I want to press on beyond this, and I want to ask, what else might be ours in the Holy Spirit? What else? God is partnering with us in bearing witness through his power. That is a little bit of what goes beyond that. He is bearing witness with us. Notice those words in our text in verse 4. We're basically just going to be extrapolating verse 4. That's all this message is on. So it says this, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. What the author describes here, it goes beyond the typical workings of the Spirit. This isn't simply companionship or fellowship. This is not simply the hidden workings of the Spirit in an individual or community. This is power on display. This is God giving blatant and supernatural evidence to the message of the truth. Through powerful workings, through miracles, through casting out demons, through healings, through divine revelations. This is going beyond just those typical things the Spirit does. We see it in the miracles performed by Jesus and by his apostles. But I want to direct your attention to the miraculous ministry of the first deacons, two deacons in particular, Stephen and Philip. These two, along with five others, they were the first deacons commissioned by the church. And you can see that in Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to be pulling from Acts 6 and Acts 8. There, in Acts 6, they're commissioning for ministry by the laying on of hands. It changed them utterly. It's so interesting to see the change that took place on these men. Before, they were men with a reputation for being filled with the Spirit and with wisdom. You see this in verse 3. That was the requirement by the apostles for who could actually become a deacon. Already, they're pretty spiritual guys. And Stephen was said in verse 5 to be a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Well, can you get much more than that? Is there more than that? Apparently so. Because after the commissioning by the laying on of hands and prayer, these men were changed. They gained even more. Verse 8 says, of chapter 6, you can see it there if you want to look. I'm not lying. Verse 8 says of Stephen, Stephen, full of grace and power. There was a difference. He was known to be a man full of the spirit, of faith and wisdom, but now he's known to be full of grace and power. And what does that look like? It says, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Do you see the difference? He had already been full of the Spirit. He already had faith and wisdom. But now he was full of grace and power. Signs and wonders followed. God bore witness with Stephen to the stubborn people of Jerusalem, to those who had killed and murdered our Lord of the gospel truth. Philip was also changed. He's known as Philip the Evangelist. You see him in Acts 8, verses 4 through 9, sharing the gospel with the Samaritans. It says he went about preaching the word till he arrived in Samaria, and he proclaimed Christ, and God also bore witness with him through signs. 
through the casting out of demons, through the healing of paralytics, and many believed and were baptized. So you see, power is afforded by the Spirit for Christian witness, and one of the ways is through signs, wonders, and miracles. But it's not only through signs that God testifies with us in power by the Spirit. Back to our passage in verse 4 of Hebrews 2. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. By gifts. What is in sight here are the various distributions and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Now what is remarkable about this is that we can see easily how God would testify to the truth of his message by signs, by wonders, by miracles. That makes sense. But this is something different. This is a distinct operation of the Spirit, granting gifts to people, supernatural ministries, unique empowerments, all to testify of God's wondrous work in the gospel. These gifts, they are many, and we see these listed in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, in 1 Corinthians 12, I won't list them for time's sake, but you can look at those passages later. So there are different kinds of ways that God testifies us with us in power, through gifts, through signs and wonders. But here we have to ask the question, a very important question. What is the purpose of these manifestations of power? What is the purpose? Now, that might seem evident to you. You're thinking, well, to witness, right? But by the look of many churches, I wouldn't say it's that obvious It's not, so it's worth repeating. In the scriptures, the purpose of these manifestations of power is at least twofold, to witness and to build up. Now, our focus in today's text is on witnessing, but it's worth considering that other purpose, building up or edifying others. You see the purpose, you see it clearly in Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where Paul, and I'm going to be looking at that passage right now, so you may want to flip there. There, Paul instructs the church of Corinth in how to exercise the manifestations of the Spirit. He gives them instruction for this. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, listen to these words, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's why. Why did he give it to them? Church? For the common good. This was the point Paul was getting across in his letter to the church of Corinth. You see, the church of Corinth, they were abusing this. They were abusing power and the power of the Spirit. They abused it because they were missing the purpose of the power. They wanted power for power's sake. They wanted manifestations of the Spirit just for the thing itself, but they forgot the whole purpose of it. This is like many charismatic churches today. They want displays of the Spirit, and that's not bad. We should want those things. But what they do, as in the Corinthian church, is often done chaotically. It's often done without decency, without order, everyone showing off, talking and babbling at the same time. You don't come away from that service having gleaned anything, having been built up, having been loved. 
No one leaves changed or better off. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 39 through 40, he gives them this instruction to help them with this. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Some say, but the Spirit has a will of his own, right? He has a will of his own. We shouldn't restrain him with structure. Well, apparently Paul's saying that some structure can actually aid the work of the Spirit. But what if the Spirit constrains me to say something and I just can't help it? I've got to ah, say it, right? Well, you can help it, actually. Paul says as much in chapter 14, verses 32 through 33. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. They are subject to prophets. It doesn't look like demon possession where you can't control yourself. They are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God loves order and decency and peace because with these things, we can better serve and love each other. So the Corinthians, as many charismatics today, were not doing things in an orderly fashion. Sounds like I'm bashing on charismatics today, right? Don't worry, I'll hit everybody later. So we're not doing things, they weren't doing things in an orderly fashion. And Paul exhorts them by addressing their root problem. He reminds them of the purpose of the Spirit's empowerment, mutual edification, building up one another, love. That is Paul's whole point. What's the point of your fancy gifts unless you're loving each other toward Christ with them? He challenges them in chapter 14, verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What an exhortation. You're eager to see the Spirit work in you, to see His power. Well, if you're so eager for that, then strive for this, to build up others, to build up the church. So by God's grace, may we direct spiritual power to its purpose, building each other up in love. Paul says this also in Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 16. He says that Christ gives gifts by one spirit and says in verses 11 through 16 this. You may want to see that. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see, church? You see the purpose of the gifts. 
Love is the great purpose of the gifts. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is right there in that argument, the great love chapter. Nurturing and cultivating each other to grow up in Christ is the purpose of these gifts. And if love is not our guide in the use of gifts, then our gifts are in vain. They are vain. They are empty. They are wind. Do you not see that it is the very reason that Christ gave us gifts in the first place to love his bride, the church, to perfect her, to grow her beauty and holiness. So that is one purpose of the power granted by the Spirit, building up the body in love. The other is to bear witness, to bear testimony to the world. And this is the purpose highlighted in our text in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. It says, God also bore witness. That was the purpose of Jesus' miracles. The apostle John wrote in John 20, verse 23, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was the purpose of Jesus doing his signs and wonders. And that was the purpose of John writing his gospel, recording the signs and wonders. The power of the Spirit was the immediate need of the disciples for their global mission. In Luke 24, Jesus says to the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ shall suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, You are witnesses of these things things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Don't go out. You're not enough. You're not enough. You may have seen me raised from the dead. You may have heard me teaching you for three years, but that's not enough. You need power from the Holy Spirit. He said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They were given power for the purpose of witness, and God still testifies with us by his Spirit. The question often arises but does true faith really need a sign? Does it need to see a miracle, a wonder? No, it doesn't. But apparently, sometimes God helps people to believe. Sometimes he helps them. He knows that we're dust, that we're faithless and untrusting. We don't trust him. And so sometimes he helps us. Think of doubting Thomas, right? The Lord had risen The disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They bore testimony to them of what they had seen. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What strong terms, doubting Thomas. And we all know that the Lord after that gave up on Thomas, right? He just gave up on him and said, well, you don't believe. If you won't believe, then I'm not going to show up. No, that's not what happened. He actually appeared to him, and Thomas believed. 
Now, Jesus did rebuke him. He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the Lord will not appear to everyone or give a sign to every person, but at times, and in his gentleness and his love, he does bear witness with power. I should also note here that sometimes signs do not result in faith. Jesus' crucifixion is an obvious example of this. The crowds had seen his works, and they still killed him. Also in Lystra, Paul healed a cripple before the eyes of all. But instead of believing the message and glorifying God, what did the people do? The people of Lystra began worshiping Paul and Barnabas and called them Zeus and Hermes. They wanted to make sacrifices of them, and they couldn't even restrain the crowds. So signs, we can't rely on them too much. But sometimes God does display power that can and does lead to faith. I want to share a story with you about this from my own experience. About a year ago, Jen and I were visiting, Jenna, my wife, we were visiting her grandmother, Barbara. Now, Jenna was, I mean, Barbara, (laughs) Jean's her mother, I'm getting all the women in their family confused. She was raised Jewish, and Jenna had been testifying to her of the gospel, and this was my first opportunity to meet her, so we prayed for opportunity. Well, when we visited her, we somehow got to the topic of the gospel. I don't know how that happened, but halfway in, she looks off into the window And she says, I see him. I see Christ on the cross beckoning me. And I said, well, you probably should go to him then. (laughs) Right? And I, I explained to her faith in Christ. I explained repentance from sin. And she said, you know, I want to believe, but it's so hard. I was raised Jewish being told that Jesus was just a man. Right? How am I supposed to change that belief? How am I going to change that? And then she said, you know, it's interesting how she brought this up right after that. She said, you know, my hip, it's been killing me. I have a real problem with my hip. And every day it hurts, and I have to take medication for it every day. And I have to get surgery for it at some point. You know, if Jesus could heal that, then I think I would believe. Well, she had a measure of faith for it. And I believe that God could do it if he willed. I said, you know, whatever his will may be, I believe he can. So I put my hand on her hip, and I said, I pray for you according to your faith. Barbara, be be healed in the name of Jesus. And I asked her how she felt after that. And she said, I don't know. I said, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll continue our visit. So we just continued our visit. But two weeks later, we kept praying for her, and we hadn't heard back from her, so I just thought, ah, shoot, I guess it didn't work. I guess God didn't heal her, but, you know, he's in charge. He's in control. That's fine. Uh, Until she called us. She said that the pain was completely gone, entirely gone, and she had stopped taking her medication. She talked with her doctor about it. She was not going to get surgery anymore, and she testified to her doctor and to Jenna's whole family that God had healed her through prayer. So I, I think signs and miracles work nowadays. I don't know. Um, still a little skeptical. And she, believed. and she believed, actually. I was about to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and she believed. <laughs> yeah, she, she confessed faith in Jesus after that. And I got the opportunity to baptize her. So it was... Um, 
a, a wonderful thing. So God is bearing witness with us in power. God can, and he still does, testify with us. So to summarize, the power of the Spirit testifies, and there is a purpose to this power. It is to love. It is to build up and to bear witness to the world. But if we wish to experience this power, then what should be our posture? What posture receives power? Well, if we hope to receive power from the Spirit, if we hope to see God bear witness with us, to see his supernatural workings, then we must have faith. Big surprise, right? We must have faith. That is the right posture. Now, that is evident in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. You may want to look at it. Paul connects faith as the means of not only receiving the Spirit, but of the Spirit's supernatural work of power. It says this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer, church? Hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is it, church? Hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You not only receive the Spirit, but he continually supplies his Spirit, continually performs miracles and works by his Spirit. So it starts and ends with faith. It begins and ends with faith, this whole Christian thing. You see, as with all things in the Christian life, the righteous shall live by faith. The process of faith, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it starts with hearing the word, hearing the promise. Then as God grants understanding, it goes on to believing the promise. And belief leads to calling upon the Lord to accomplish what he has promised. That is the process of faith. And we need faith if we are to see God's miraculous works among us. But what does this posture of faith do? What, how does this look? Let me briefly share with you just seven scriptural descriptions of what kind of faith does. <laughs> Don't get nervous. They're only about 20 minutes long. So we only have about two hours and a half left. We just started. Finally, there's my introduction. So, <clears throat> number one, a faith that believes that God can. Many of us don't believe it, actually. Well, we believe that he's able, but we don't expect him to do it. Now, this can be traced back, I think, you know, I mean, you can, you can point it to faith and to a measure of, do, do you have the knowledge? Do you have the understanding? Do you just not believe? That also can be part of it. But some of it traces back to an error known as cessationism. Here I am hitting all sides, okay? The charismatics, now the cessationists. I'm hitting them all. 
So it is the belief that many of the more supernatural gifts have ceased. If you hold this view, don't worry, you're not alone. For the longest time, I also suffered the same affliction. But recently, I am recovering. And I hope you will too. So the basic proposition of cessationism is that when the scriptures were completed, right? When we got all of this written down for us, that there was no more need for God to testify with us through signs and through supernatural gifts. But the passage, the very, you know, I was raised on this, right? I was raised Baptist cessationist, and I went to Bible college, and I, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't see anywhere in the scripture where I actually said this, so they were having a, a class on gifts, and I said, great, finally, I'll be able to hear the passage that is going to convince me that gifts have ceased, and I'll be able to say this to people. Um, but uh, the passage used to prove this is the same passage, ironically, that proves that these kinds of gifts have yet to cease. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, right? The one, unfortunately, used at weddings so often. Well, we know the context. We've already talked about it of chapters 12 through 14. Paul is arguing for what sorts of gifts the Corinthians should pursue, the ones that love the church the best, the ones that are loving. So in chapter 13, let's read verses 8 through 13. Before this, he describes love, its characteristics, and then he says this about love. Love never ends. That's big. That's going to be a big part of understanding this passage. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, as I also have been fully known. Is that not a beautiful passage? Now there's nothing in any of this that suggests that any of the gifts have yet ceased. Are we reading the same passage here? I hope we are. Maybe you have a different version that adds something, but there's nothing in this passage describing the completion of the Scriptures. The time it describes is clearly when we are face-to-face with God. That is what it's describing. When we are made perfect, when we will know all things fully. Do we know all things fully? Some people say, well, yeah, the Scriptures... Uh, Listen, buddy, I know you don't know all things fully, okay? I'm hearing what you're talking about, right? I I heard you preach, okay? Um, We don't, I don't confess to know all things fully, but that's what it's saying, that that will be the occasion, that will be what it looks like. We will know all fully, just as we have also been fully known. So do we know as God knows? No. So I imagine that means that this hasn't happened yet. 
So that is why these kinds of gifts will no longer be needed, right? When we come face to face with God. Why have revelation or prophecy when all things have been revealed? Why speak mysteries in a tongue when all the mysteries have been made evident? Faith will turn to sight, right? That's the last verse there it says in in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the eternal gift. It will never end. Faith will end. Faith will turn to sight, Hope will be fulfilled, but love will go on. Knowledge will be complete. It will end. We will not have need of it because it will be completed. But love will go on, abounding and abounding forever and ever. It'll just be a love fest, an eternal love fest, but not one of those creepy hippie ones. So that is Paul's point, right? That's Paul's point. That's why he says love is the greatest gift. Because love is eternal. It never ends. Everything else will end, but not love. So the manifestations of the Spirit, they are still in full operations. Therefore, we must start with a faith that believes he can. You might have forgotten, but I'm in a list of seven. That was number one. <laughs> so don't worry, they're a lot quicker after this one. So thought I'd spend a little more time on that. So number two, a faith subject to God's will. A faith subject to God's will. Our passage says, God bear, bears witness by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You see, the Spirit, like any person, has a will. He has a will by which he exerts and makes choices and decides things. And according to his will, not ours, notice, not according to our will, what we want or what we think is best, but according to his will, he chooses how much to give, what to give, and to whom to give it. Now you might say, well, this kind of raises a question. Well, aren't we all created equal? How can he give different gifts and different measures of things to different people? Well, perhaps we are, but apparently the Spirit doesn't distribute gifts like a communist. That's not how he works. He distributes different kinds of grace and different measures all according to his good will. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. They defer according to the grace given to us. Different measures of grace. Different kinds of gifts. When you subject your faith to God's will, you exchange presumption for humble trust. Instead of presuming on God's gifts like a spoiled child, you humbly ask, trusting that his will, it is good, it is right, it is beautiful. He will do what is best with our requests. So number three, a faith born out of weakness. A faith born out of weakness. True faith is utter dependence on God. Complete and utter dependence on God. As men, we like independence. But if you're going to walk by faith, you have to have interdependence. 
complete dependence on the Lord. We cannot hope to experience the power of the Spirit apart from walking in weakness. This is the upside-down kingdom, how it works. He actually works power through weakness. That's why God said to Paul, My grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in your strength? No, in weakness. Hudson Taylor, he said this. Actually, Ben texted me this last night. I was encouraging. Hudson Taylor said, All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. They reckoned on God's presence and on his power. True power is born out of weakness. Number four, a faith that asks. James says, you have not because you ask not, right? We have to take the time to give expression to our faith. He doesn't just throw gifts at you. He actually wants you to ask him. You have not because you ask not. So we must ask the Lord to grant his power and his gifts. Number five, a faith that is pure. James says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your lusts. Another version says, on your evil motives. So we must keep our hearts pure. We must keep our motives clean. We must go to the Lord and say, Lord, cleanse me of the selfish ambition that is in my heart. That wants people to glorify me through a manifestation of your power. That's using God to be impressive. How evil. So may we do it for his glory. May he purify our hearts. Number six, a faith that persists. You must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seek him. That's Hebrews 11.6. In other words, you must ask him and you must continue to ask him. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11.9-13. This powerful and hope-filling word from Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in that situation. You know, one of the craziest times of my life was taking this verse and pursuing. I said, wow, Lord, I see it. I want it desperately. I'm going to go crazy so that I can receive this. So I was in the barn house. I was preparing a sermon. This was last summer, and it was the God is love. I don't know if you, anybody remember that God is love. And, um, and I was there on my knees, and I was there for hours just asking, God, your word says if I ask for this, you will give it to me. So here I am waiting. I'm going to wait till you give it to me. And there was a door next to me, and I was just knocking. You said, knock, and you open. So I'm waiting, Lord. Give it to me. And, uh, and I waited for hours, man. Sometimes you got to wait for a long time. And, and I was like, I was starting to give up. I was starting to, I'm getting a little hungry. Can I eat some lunch? But I kept doing it, and I kept seeking the Lord. And then I had the Holy Spirit fall upon me. 
This is one of the most vivid experiences of the Spirit falling upon me. And I could, I don't know how to explain it, but I basically had a a vision. (laughs) I don't want to call it a vision because I didn't see something, but I felt it, and it's like I could see in my mind's eye Christ on the cross standing before me, his feet here, the blood pooling down, and I had a revelation of God's love for me in Christ. And um, so that's, I encourage you, knock. Knock. Keep knocking. He's in there. He's right across the, that door. You just have to keep knocking. Number seven, a faith that fasts. Are you looking for his will? Are you looking for his guidance, for empowerment, for an answer? If you want to seek God, fasting is one of the most effective ways to do it. This is so often ignored in modern American churches. We go to the grocery store, we go to fast food, we have it right next to us, it's in our fridge. But what if we ignore food out of a craving and a hunger to see the Lord give us something, to give us what he has promised us, to bless us? In Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, we see believers in the midst of a prayer meeting where they're all fasting and they're all worshiping. And God responds to them. He speaks to them, perhaps in a prophetic revelation even. And he says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. You see how God responded to their fasting and worshiping. They obeyed and they sent them off with even more fasting and praying. Paul and Barnabas would go on to change the known world, planting churches across the Mediterranean from one prayer meeting that was defined by fasting and worshiping. So church, let us seek God more. Oh, let us seek him. Let us have that posture that receives from his hand of blessing, that receives power for the work that he's given us to do. Let us seek him together. Let us seek him by ourselves alone. And as we hunger and thirst for his blessings, as we crave his promises, he will satisfy us. He satisfies the hungry. Let's get hungry for God's blessings. So in conclusion, church, there's a promise for us. It is a promise to turn our pitiful witness into a witness of power. It can turn fear into courage. It can bring the most timid of us to speak boldly the truth of God. If we would only seek diligently the blessing, imagine how different our church community could look. So dramatically different. Church, do you want this? Do you want it? You have to want it. You have to believe. You have to seek it. So knock, seek, ask. Let this month, let this year, let this be a time of seeking the Lord, of calling upon his name, desperate to receive from him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your spirit who is among us, teaching us, convicting us, declaring to us your word magnifying your spirit and the work of your spirit to build up this church in love, to build up our community, to seek them with a witness that is bold and empowered by your spirit.
Lord, I remember that you, you gave your spirit to powerfully wreck your foes. When you first poured out your spirit on the day of Pentecost, I remember Peter, he said, he quoted David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God, your spirit can still conquer on behalf of your son today. Do great works again in our day. Let the darkness tremble. Let captives be set free. Fall upon us in power, Lord, for your glory, for your name's sake, and in your name we pray all these things. Amen.